Hello and welcome to another episode of the Gaming Moguls podcast, the only podcast where you log all of your plays and describe it away by calling it your gaming Fitbit. I'm your host, Mr. Mark Teske, along with my intrepid co-host, Mr. Jacob Klopfenstein. Jake, how's it going tonight? It's going wonderfully, Mark. It's always wonderful. And it's not just the two of us tonight. We have a very special guest this evening, Mr. Dan Thoreau, more commonly known as Space Biff. Dan, how you doing tonight? Hello. I am well, thank you. My name is Dan Thoreau. I am 32 years old and a solid 7 out of 10. Nice. <laughs> nice. Is that a difficulty rating? You know, you take it how you want to take it. <laughs> is that holistic? Is that just on looks? I don't know, man. Because I keep the, the the picture that you use for your uh, blog there. I always describe that as actually being you, and it makes all of your reviews way funnier. <laughs> so, you, you like the picture of Thomas Aquinas. I believe that's his name. That sounds like someone who's smart would know that. Yeah. So yeah. I do not know who Thomas Aquinas is. Enlighten me. He, he's a Catholic saint. Oh, I am not Catholic. Um, <laughs> my background is in religious history, and when I was making Space Biff originally. I, I just found this image of him because I was working on a history of the saints and it looked like he was smoking a blunt and it made me laugh. So that's what I used. <laughs> that's hilarious. Oh, that's great. I hadn't realized who that actually was. I thought it actually was a uh, crime scene, like courtroom drawing of the perpetrator. Oh, yeah. So, but yep, no. I, I can't unsee that now. That's great. And there it is. Dan, why don't you tell us a couple minutes about uh, what Space Biff is and why people probably know of you more than they know of us. Space Biff is a board game review site is probably the way that most people would describe it. Uh, it's purely written. I don't do video. I have done a little bit of audio in the past. I had a podcast that I quit that might be coming back relatively soon. Ooh. But I write about board games. I'm a simple guy. That's how straightforward it gets. So how do you choose the board games? Do you just like whatever strikes your fancy? You write about what you're playing that week or kind of what's your process there? Um, it really depends on the season in a way. Um, if we're not in convention season, it's 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 more positive because it's that I'm reviewing whatever strikes my fancy. It's often whoever will send me review copies of those things, though I do buy quite a few of my own copies. Oh, cool. Um during convention season, it's it's often I'm writing about whatever publishers send me. And then who knows, especially some of the bigger publishers, they'll just send you these huge care packages that has like one thing you wanted to write about. And then like five filler titles that you can tell they can't sell. <laughs> <laughs> and so so I end up reviewing those and, and I and I'm never sure why they keep thinking that if they send me their leftover warehousing, that it's going to get a better review or something. I. But uh, that's what happens. Well, I think that's just packing material so that the original game that you actually wanted to review doesn't get damaged. They put it in the middle. They <laughs> surrounded true. it by books or by, 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 more, by yeah. more games. It's going to get squished. It's going to be fine. It's more eco-friendly than styrofoam. As the era of newspapers ends, we have to resort to bad board games. Yeah, that's the new thing. <laughs> welcome to welcome to our capitalist hell. Awesome. Well, the first time I actually saw your blog was uh, the article for Quacks von Quedlinburg. And what I, mm. I didn't like the game and I was in an argument with my uh, uncle and he thought it was great. And so I Googled review with that, hoping to find someone else that didn't like it. And I found your blog, which I thought was wonderful and wonderfully written, but you disagreed with me at the end. Well, thank you. And I've always had a chip on my shoulder with your blog ever since. And I can't use you in arguments with my uncle. It's not fair. <laughs> Well, I apologize. Maybe we'll maybe we'll find something good to argue about or even to agree about today. Maybe we'll see. Well, thank you so much for joining us. 
We really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. I am curious about one thing is that given that you are given a bunch of games that you don't like, speaking of games we don't like, how is that having to play a bunch of games that you're just not that interested in or don't care about? Because I know Jake and I have always made a point of like never playing a game for the podcast. We always just want to do what we do and talk about it. And you don't have that luxury. How has that been over time? I noticed that a lot of people, so, so you see a lot of new media personalities in this hobby, whether they're reviewers or content creators or previewers, there's just, there's this sort of burnout hump that they have to get over. You got into the hobby to play the games you like, and you began writing reviews or doing a podcast to talk about those things. But then as you become more popular, suddenly you find yourself, you've got to go through the stuff you don't want to do. So for me, the hobby is not board games. For me, the hobby is critiquing and writing about board games. That's what I actually like to do. If I weren't doing that, I don't think I'd play many board games. Wow, that's really and, interesting And that's to hear. how my group is. My group very much likes to get together and play games, at least most of the members of my gaming group, because that's how we were formed, is most of them do it because I get sent the games, they like the social aspect, and that's kind of how we've groomed ourselves, is we like to critique them. And so we'll play a game and it doesn't really matter if it's good or bad. We just like to play it and then talk about how we felt about it, what it could have done better. Maybe was there some authorial intent that was being met or wasn't being met? So that's my hobby is critiquing and writing about games, not really just playing games. Uh, so that that probably helps. Interesting. Yeah, I can certainly see the appeal to that as well as I can certainly see that I bet it's fun once in a while to play a game that's a complete stinker and just laugh about all the things that are wrong with it. Yeah, and one of the consequences of that is that we often will prefer to play a game that's really good that we can get enthusiastic about or a game that we can really dig into and criticize. If a game is just kind of blandly okay, like a like the six or seven out of ten range, for me that's like the the two out of ten. Because there's not there's not anything to say. Right. So I often run into that kind of with the mainstream titles. Right. And this 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 uh, hobby is definitely having a glut of uh, meh or OK games. It really is starting to get hard to really with the aggressive release cycle, stay on top of right. and find the games that are actually really good. Yeah. So, Dan, speaking of games that you've played and reviewed, your most recent review is one that I was really excited to read because I'm really, really excited about this game. And uh, believe that I will be receiving it shortly. We're talking about PAX Premier 2.0. Yeah. You appeared to be a big fan of this game. Is, am I understating that by probably a lot? <laughs> I, I am smitten with PAX Premier 2, and I wasn't expecting to be. So as you may know, so I was a big fan of the first game. It was my game of the year for 2015. It's one of those games with a lot of rough edges that I really appreciate, just how idiosyncratic it is, how bold it is that it's doing things that really nothing else is doing, despite being, you know, the second entry in this PAX series. And so I was really excited when, when Cole Worley contacted me and said, hey, I'm, I have a prototype for this new edition, for the second edition of PAX Premier. And I played it a few times, and I played a few iterations of it, actually. And Cole is one of the game designers who I respect most working today. I think he's really dynamic. He's doing exciting stuff. And I played it and I, I kind of didn't like it. <laughs> and he, he then he sent me a second iteration that I liked a lot more, but I still had some really big reservations about. So when they when they told me that they were sending me an advanced copy of this finished version, I, I was a little bit torn because I was excited. You know, Cole had mentioned that he had improved on some of the places where I had made critiques. 
So I, I was eager to see that. But at the same time, I was kind of going, man, I do not really feel like on the moment of their big release, you know, the first release of his new studio, uh, Whirly Gig Games, I don't really feel like bashing it. I'm going to feel a little bad about this. But even just reading the rules, I was going, oh, this is good. Uh, so many of the issues I had with the prototype, even just the rules, and having had played the original game so many times, I was going, this is solid. This fixes a lot That's of awesome. my concerns. And then playing it, I was just transported. It was, it's wonderful. I think it's really smooth. It's fundamentally a different game. If you're a fan of the first game, I would say you, sh you might want to consider still holding on to it. But this is very much a worthy successor and in many ways a superior well, one. That's awesome. I'm really looking forward to it because my history with PAX games is somewhat limited. Um, when I was starting to get into mm -hmm. heavy games about two or three years ago, there's a local convention here called Con of the North. And so there was a couple of events being signed up. So I signed up for PAX Ren and I played it twice, both back to back with an absolutely wonderful teacher, but I just couldn't quite understand the entire game around it. I won yeah. once accidentally. Maybe I probably shouldn't say that I won with complete tactical awareness of what was going on <laughs> and levers. But and I actually was going to originally miss out on the Kickstarter. And then, Mark, you were kind enough to kickstart it and say, Jake, are you sure you don't want to copy the backer kits open? And I added one on. So we are both very much looking forward to getting our uh, copies coming in the mail. Is it more accessible than kind of the other games in the PAX line? Very much so. So you haven't played Premier One? No, we have not. The hallmark of the PAX series to me is, is this idea that you aren't actually in control of much of the board state. It's this idea that there are other forces who are a bit more powerful than you, and you're kind of the middleman that's helping those big factions take control. So like in PAX Renaissance, for instance, you do not control Catholicism or Islam, right. for instance, and you don't control the troops on the table. At times you can nudge them, you can fund a crusade, in which case you have control over them temporarily. Well, Pax Pamir was really dense with that. There's these three empires. So the Afghan empire, the, the British and the Russians, and you don't have direct control over them. Instead, you have these kind of lightning strikes of impact with them where you can, for a brief moment, you can be the one who's like the guide. You know, your tribesmen are out guiding them through Afghanistan to do an ambush. Or you're the one who chooses, uh, here's how they're going to come into the country. And the original game was really difficult because there were four major pieces and four modes. And in order to win, you needed to have one piece of every mode. You had to have a spy, a tribe, an army, and a road. And then you had to switch the mode to the type of piece that you had more than anyone else of at the time that you purchased a particular card from the market. So it was this multi-step and you had to have the most influence with the team that won. So it was this really complex uh, formulation. So whenever a dominance card appeared in the market, the game would just slam on the brakes because everybody suddenly had to evaluate this really complex interplay and also considering the possibility of someone changing that mode. Where Pax Pamir is super legible is instead of doing that, everything is now tied to, first of all, just blocks. So the, the blocks that represent the empire's armies and roads. And if an empire, when you draw a dominance, if an empire has four or more blocks than, the, than any other empire, they win. And whoever's the most loyal to them gets a bunch of points. Second most loyal gets fewer points and so forth. Got it. It's just super legible. 
You can tell at a glance who's winning. You don't need to count things up. You don't need to do math. You don't even need fourth grade math. You can just look at the blocks next to the table and tell it. Oh, that's awesome. And so it's, yeah, super great entry point. Very easy to play. But there's still enough depth there that you can pull off crazy ambushes and maneuvers and surprise twists and you can turn coat and change your allegiance. It's really cool. Awesome. That's awesome. And the, the production of it, they did an absolutely wonderful job. I hope that the uh, cloth board looks as awesome in person as it did on the, on the on the pictures that they've been posting. Yes. As someone who's wary of fabric, I was really pleased. That's awesome. We also were able to play some games this week. Mark and I just wrapped up a game of 1828, which is a JCL slash clear claw design. What did you think of it, Mark? We'll start up with your thoughts on it. Yours are more concise than mine. So just as a background, uh, Dan, have you played any 18xx games? Know the system at all? I've played one of them. Okay. Uh, Russian Railways, I think. 61? I, you know, they're just numbers to me. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's half the fun, knowing all the numbers. You can seem really cool and somebody says a country and you can say numbers that follow it and somehow make sense. It's coded language. Yeah, which it, it's maybe embarrassing since I am a historian that I am like, ah, it's just numbers. <laughs> yeah, numbers. It's just numbers and dates. That's ridiculous. Cool. So 1828, it's a brand new game on the market. Well, it's not on the market. Available? Yeah, he does sell copies of it, actually. He prints and sells copies of them. Oh. So is that on the market? I suppose. But it is still in prototype. It's uh, I was part of a playtesting group for it. And the author of the game was actually monitoring our playthrough on it. And 1828 superficially looks a lot like kind of a bigger, more complex 1830. And as we learned in the playthrough, the similarities ended right there. 1830 is very much a stock market stock shenanigans game. Whereas this one is really about evaluating the situation you're in at the moment and correctly reacting to that, whether it's starting companies or laying track or making a system or pulling all of the various levers that he's provided to you as a player. Jake, is that an accurate description of the game? I think it did a good job explaining it. And that was kind of the issue with the game that I had is so we played this on Board 18, which is an online way to play these 18xx games. And the spreadsheet was very well done, but I just don't think it was the right way to experience this large of a game. And it really has a lot of systems in it. It had systems. It had different. It had, think, the most public companies that I've ever seen in a game. A very interesting new waterfall mechanism. And it had coal tokens that I don't even know how they exist. It might have been a little bit too much to play online. So I, I think that's colored my opinion on it. Yeah. And honestly, I think it's a great game. I think I need to play it again in real life just to really actually get the full flavor of it. I agree. I think there's definitely something to be had here um, with all of the options that have gotten to it. But it dragged on a little bit online through no real issue there. Just uh, life got in the way, you know, and if it is a week every once and then can really slow down the game. So I think you should print and play it, Mark. I think you should move this up to a high next level game that you should print and play. One example of just the game being a little distracting was that as we were playing it, I got five sixths of the way through floating a company and then just forgot to buy the last share before the next operating round. So I was sitting on a bunch of inactive shares the whole next time. And well, that was pretty much the end of the game for me. Yeah. But yeah, that was 1828 by JCL slash Clearclaw. Find it on BGG. Mark, you had some chance to play some games with your family this weekend. Why don't you talk about one? I did. First off, let's talk about uh, another train game. I was able to pull out Northern Pacific, published by Rio Grande Games. We've talked about this several times recently, so not going to go into deep detail on what the game is, other than that this might be the quickest teaching game that I own. 
and also somewhat brain burning. Ostensibly, you're just creating a route from east to west, and it's all about trying to get the people that are before and after you to do their bidding, to predict what the person before you is going to do and predict what the person after you is going to do and ride their coattails. And if you ride their coattails with investment successfully, you'll be successful in the game. My family picked up on that notion really quickly. In fact, uh, you know, my son was sitting there right off the bat going, okay, so mom is going to go to Kansas City, but Elizabeth wants to go up to Grand Rapids. So therefore, dad's first and he's going to go over that. So it, it was great to see them internalize that being that they're 11 and 12. The one thing we did that's different, though, is Tom always said that one of the rules that didn't make it in the box in the final edition by Rio Grand Games was to have random player order. Normally, as you're thinking about who's next, it's very convenient to think about that person to your left as being next. Boy, does that get harder when the person that's next is kitty corner across the table from you. Yeah. So what did you did you actually like the change? Because I've always wanted to play with this way, but haven't played it. I just think it'd be better for the table experience because you'd be able to interact with and think about people other than the people directly to your left and directly to your right. I think it depends on how well balanced your play group is. Like if you have a bunch of devious people that are real good thinkers and you don't mind always being to the right of somebody, then it's probably not a big deal. And if they don't mind you always being to the right left of them, probably not a big deal. But there's some variability in the player order. Somebody might have an easy deal because the person before them just does something stupid all the time. And yeah. this is going to mix that up and give you some variability on that one. So I took my laser cutter out and I cut some nice little tiles for this and we could flip out and randomize the player order between each round. That's awesome. Northern Pacific's an awesome game. Dan, have you played it? No, no, you should try it. It's good. I'm, I'm afraid of trains. You are in general? Uh, childhood trauma. Oh, there it is. We shouldn't get into it. Yeah. Thomas is spooky. <laughs> this is really a, just a pure abstract that the train theme is <laughs> as superficial as could possibly be. They're really, there, there's no train there at all. It's literally just a route building game and could be anything else. Yeah. We thought about having it oh, be like good. some like networking or uh, like computer network or something along those lines would be fine, but it could honestly even be an abstract too. Just how oh, yeah. it be cubes. It really is a pure abstract with cubes. What else have you been able to play in the last couple of weeks uh, there, Dan? Well, this week, um, I also have played a lot of Champions of Hara, Downfall. And on Saturday, we had a seven-hour play of Here I Stand. Jeez. Uh, all of which were interesting in their own ways. It was a bit of a lighter week, honestly. Absolutely. Um, what do you think of Downfall? I have uh, unplayed taken out of plastic wrap, opened up the box and was too overwhelmed and then closed it back up, copy sitting on my shelf. So the 10 pounds of punch board were too much for you. Um, what was that? And there was just like a pile of plastic things, just like a whole bunch of them. Just, just so much, so much like it looked like debris inside the box. Yeah. It's a very cluttered game. Even when you get it set up, it's just, it's a lot. It's a bit extra. It's a bit extra. So I often will say I would rather a game do something interesting imperfectly than do everything perfect and be boring. And Downfall is a great example of that. It, it does some stuff I really respect. I think from John Clare, it's a very bold design. I would love to see him do more like this. In a way, its concessions to playability are the problem. For those who don't know, it's this, it's a survival game where you play as a band of survivors. There's been some sort of apocalypse. I don't know what kind, probably nuclear. And it's really harsh, almost like Phil Eklund's Greenland and, ne and Neanderthal harsh. Oh, like wow. you, you can die. You can be knocked out of the game. Every time I've played, somebody has, at least in the final scoring, been totally eradicated. And I like that. I like that it's, it's kind of brash in today's 
assumed wisdom, this idea that, nope, you can't eliminate players. Everyone has to kind of rubber band into the same place. So I really respect that. I wish it had gone further with that. I I wish that it had been a little easier to invade other players. You are so busy just trying to gather enough food to survive that the prospect of also going to war to, to steal resources or territory is just, I, I can't fathom doing it. Oh, wow. So I wish it had been easier to actually put your fangs out a bit more. But yeah, it was an interesting game. I have a lot of respect for what it's trying to do, but it, it kind of exists in that weird middle ground where it's trying a little bit too hard to be mainstream. And I think if it had run with its hostility, it could have been a really great game. So we'll have to play that, Mark. I wonder if Mark won't like it because Mark's not a big fan of dudes on a map style game and hostility generally. Oh, that's not true. I'm a big fan of hostility. Dudes on a map hostility for some reason doesn't work for me. I don't know why. Yes, you don't like hostility if it's like random guys attacking other guys. You're fine with it in the boardroom style of 18xx games or backroom dealings of Twilight Struggle. But some weird reason like... I think my challenge with a lot of the dudes on the map games is that I sort of like things to be organized and ready to go. And there's a there's a baked in amount of chaos in a lot of uh, area control and dudes on a map games. So I'll sort of I have my plan. I'll go I'll set up and I'll execute that plan and I'll move stuff in. Then somebody will play some card and just take out my entire flank, leaving my back door open. Then I'm completely cut off and then I'm spending the next five hours twiddling my thumbs. I think also you'd like more air control games if they were two player, because there's a lot of board state that can change when we play a four player dudes on a map game. And it can just seem like if three people invade you for some weird reason. okay, well, there's only one chance for you to react to those three people. You might actually like Downfall then because the map is so big. It's actually pretty roomy and none of the games I've played. Have we explored the whole map? So here's something cool about it is that unless it matters, unless you declare it, it plays simultaneously, which is really nice. Hmm. Hmm. Um, Everyone picks a card. It has this weird drafting thing where you you take the hand of four cards or three cards from your neighbor, add a card from your deck, choose one and then pass the rest. And then you just enact that card and everyone can do that simultaneously unless you go, well, I'm going to invade you. So turn order actually matters this time. I've never actually seen anyone seriously bother with it. So so it actually might appeal to you because there isn't much dudes on the map Greek wrestling going on. It's just just scavenging for supplies and kind of pushing toward each other. And maybe you claim territory before someone, but it's not necessarily worth it to go in and fight over it. Got it. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll move that up on my rules to actually learn thing. I'll have to open up the box, but I cannot understate how much stuff there is in that box. Yeah, it's a it's a lot. It's a and thematically. It's it's a theme I'm interested in for sure, and that does help me tend to get over some <laughs> game styles I don't necessarily love. Cool. Yeah, we'll yeah. have to try it. Well, that's downfall. Well, let's talk about dudes in robes then instead. And here I stand, Dan. I'm assuming this is one you just straight up played for fun, right? Being that it was published back in 2006. The 500th anniversary edition released a couple of years from GMT. Hmm. I requested a, a review copy. Because that's very much my jam is religious history and religious struggle and how ideas uh, emerge from the conflict between religions. And unfortunately, it's it's best with six players. It should take about eight hours to play uh, if you know the rules. And so I haven't played it. So this is one of my few outstanding review copies that I've really needed to play. And it took a friend coming in from Idaho doing a five-hour drive into town so that we could play it to finally push me over the edge and uh, commit to playing this monstrosity. 
So we, we played it to review. Uh, I'm going to be writing about it with my good friend, Brock Polson soon. But yeah, I mean, it, it was a, it was an awesome event. Certainly a good event game. I think we're going to actually end up crossing over with our theme later on, being that that is a card driven game from what I see. It is. Yeah. And what it does with cards is, is kind of cool. So like many card driven war games, you know, you can use a card either for like action points or you can use it for its event, but most cards only benefit one faction. So you have this really cool negotiation phase where you can go into other rooms in the house. And we played at my friend Evan's house and his basement is big and his family is small. So we had like three bedrooms we could go into for these private negotiations. So you go, hey, Ottomans, I want to talk to you about an opportunity. And then you go away and you, you talk. It's kind of like diplomacy in that regard. Very cool. But you can't trade cards, at least not, not easily. So what, what you end up doing is you say, if you do something for me, like let's say you give me some territory or you back off over here or you ransom a general back to me, then I will play this event for you. But of course, that's not binding. So maybe they, they're like, okay, I'm going to release this general back, you know, this, this king who I captured. I'll ransom him back to you for free. And then a few turns later, you go, nah, I'm not going to play that event for you. I'm going to, I'm going to play it for action points. And oh man, I love the negotiations are really the highlight there. Oh, that's awesome. Hmm. Hearing you say uh, diplomacy scares me, though. That was one of the few times I've ever had to uh, leave a game for fear of being a uh, table flipping. I was playing when I was a young, young boy with some friends and we all had laptops so we could privately message each other in diplomatic ways. Yeah. And uh, I got killed and stabbed in the back as the Russians. And my car drive home was was misty eyed, to say the least. This is a lot kinder than uh, than diplomacy. I, you know, diplomacy is one of those games that's the reason for a lot of people's first divorce. This one is not. <laughs> okay, got it. Um, it seems like a fascinating game. My fear is we would own a copy of that, Jake, and we'd be looking at each other going, all right, who else besides you and I are we going to get to play that with? Uh, good question. We'll probably have to drive all the way out to Salt Lake. That probably makes more sense. <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah, that's. Else. Well, you, yeah, come into town. Let's do it. Sweet. That sounds uh, good. That would be fun. If we're in Salt Lake City, I would love to play this with you. Yeah, let's set it up. I was able to head up to my fiance's cabin this weekend and taught a very different game to Anna's family that we've talked about in a few other podcasts. So we're going to be quick about it. I played Dan Cassar's Magnum Opus Arboretum again with Anna's family. And the reason why I'm bringing it up is nothing really new to report. They all loved it. This is the first game that I've played 10 times this year. So I am feeling pretty awesome that I finally finished one of those. So what playing Arboretum with Anna's family kind of taught me, and we talked about this briefly, us three, Mark, Dan, and I, uh, before the before we actually started recording, is I'm just loving replaying the same game. And it's kind of interesting hearing, I think, both Mark's and Dan's opinion on this, because you guys are kind of in the opposite camp. You guys are wanting to try more new stuff and kind of see what's out there. And I keep on finding that I just kind of figured out what games I like. I'm starting to become an old curmudgeon. Yeah, and... <laughs> You know, I know we both kind of took a vow to replay more of our favorite games this year as of the first of the year, and I'm feeling the stress of the unplayed game starting to build up. I've been trying to play the same games more, but it hasn't turned out that way in, in actual reality. Well, you, you did play an old one this weekend. I saw pictures posted. Yeah, to wit on that one. I actually <laughs> pulled out. Uh, it's new to me. I got it in trade, but I thought it's one that my family would love, and that's Firefly the Board Game by Gale Force 9. This is just thematic trash for the most part not the hugest <laughs> fan of pickup and delivery 
But I'm a huge fan of Firefly. I always have been. And I thought this was one that my family would really like because they like playing Mint Delivery Service also. And this is sort of just a, uh, you know, targeted version of that. And it went great. My daughter picked it up instantly and actually won by quite a bit. And darn if they didn't start binge watching Firefly immediately after we finished playing the game. The only time I've played Firefly, I somehow lost money in the entire game. I got raided by the Reaper, the Reavers, the Reavers. Re- the Reavers, I believe I got Reavers. I got yep. raided by them at least like six times. I don't know how it happened. And it was like the worst game experience ever. So I'd like to play this one again, just so I can actually have a better experience than that trash. That was the first time I played. <laughs> I've heard this game can run really, really long. In fact, I've seen some games of this run really long. And that has not been oh, my man. experience thus far. That has been my experience with it. Yeah. The way that I have survived every play of Firefly is just trying to reassure myself that it is capturing the ambling twanginess of the show. The show is kind of about trucking around. So is the game. And if anyone sings that stupid boil the land and (laughs) fire the skies song, (laughs) then they're dead. (laughs) So Yuda, you would have absolutely hated this playthrough because we fired up Mellow Dice and pulled up Firefly. And it was literally a one hour nonstop loop of Firefly background music. Oh, my goodness. So And it was a, you know, it was still a two hour place. We made it through the loop twice and every busted, everybody busted into the man they call Jane every time that came out. (laughs) Well, that's the good part. Yeah, that's the good one. Oh, for sure. So that actually, you know, hearing that twangy, you know, spaghetti Western music going on as we were playing it, I think really added to it. That's a form of abuse. Weirdly, they didn't have the theme song on there. That one wasn't there. That's surprising. The other thing I find weird about Firefly is that you're all flying the same category of ship, which is like never seen because it's a really old crappy ship. But and so in all the TV show, you don't see the same ship again, the Firefly style ship. I can't remember the mark of whatever it is, but you're all for them. Isn't there an expansion that adds something so it's not that? And so they're all different ships or something. Can't you be that one, uh, what's his name, that bounty hunter who boards their ship? Can't you be on his ship yeah. or something? Early? I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, this is just the base game. So, And my daughter picked up on that literally instantly. She looks at all four ships and she just, just says, what? These in the TV show? I don't remember right, these. Like, yeah, these are all Firefly yeah, what's class. what's going on? You're on like the Serenity, the Peace, <laughs> the Calm, and the yeah. Placid. It was like the Bonnie yeah. Bay was another That's one. silly. But yeah, Firefly is a fun game. Um, maybe bring it to a convention or something when it's kind of late night shenanigans where you don't have to think much and you just fly around. Glad we played it, but I, you know, I don't overthink what it actually is. And, and the Mogul scale rating, I'm going to give this one a 4B. Not super strategic and lots of rules. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> but still a great experience. And that is that, you know, that high rules, low strategy is sort of the Ameritrash quadrant. So... There we go. Champions of Hera, Dan. I'm not familiar with this one at all. Yeah, it's it's a bit less known. So it's uh, the the point of comparison is probably Mage Knight without as much mm. fiddle. So what it does is you play as these adventurers. It's going to sound really basic. You play as adventurers on an adventure, traveling across a landscape, fighting monsters and so forth. But what sets it apart is it has a great card system. Its world is really colorful and inventive and even humorous. And in, in a lot of ways, I prefer it to Mage Knight. 
Mage Knight solo, I think, can be quite a bit of fun. But the instant you add any other players, I would rather take a nap. It drags. You, you spend so much time waiting for someone else to figure out, like, how exactly do you combine your cards to travel and fight and, and all of that. Champions of Hara, to me, is a great multiplayer game. It kind of takes the Mage Knight formula where you're you're trying to figure out how you can use a set of cards to best effect. It isn't a deck builder like Mage Knight, but it does some cool stuff with its cards. But it feels very similar, but it just none of the fiddliness of Mage Knight is there. The turns tend to be faster. I, I really enjoy playing it with other players. So I've been I've been loving it. It's a it's a good one. We'll have to add that to the list. Um so <clears throat> I owned Mage Knight and I played it solo a handful of times. And like you, I just found it so tedious to actually bring other people into the game. It's just hard to convey the ideas. Yeah. It's not it's just not rewarding. And then when you play with another person, I would never actually do the like PVP scenarios. I would just want to play the same, like you have your own kind of board. I have my own kind of board. Don't mess with me. I just want to wrestle with these systems. The game that I've always compared to Mage Knight to in my head the most is Gloomhaven. What does Hara do better than Gloomhaven? Is it just the fact that it's overland map and not necessarily like hex based combat or? Well, yeah, I mean, to, to me, Gloomhaven is, is kind of like a, dungeon crawler card optimization puzzle crossover right okay like it's all about optimizing both your short-term actions against your long-term needs you know you rest you lose cards you'll eventually poop out that's kind of the gloomhaven thing champions of heart is very much like mage knight in the sense that it's this big overland map you're on this big grand adventure and as new threats are added and they are added in copious quantities in champions of hara that map, instead of being like an open countryside, very soon becomes kind of an interlocking system of landmines and impassable areas and machine gun nests. And none of those things are things in the game. It's fantasy. But but just to kind of give you the sense, like you you can't go into a certain place or you'll get sniped by an adjacent enemy and you can't step on a certain spot or you're dead. And instead you have to look at, well, if I teleport over here and then I come at it from this angle and use this item that I'll get from this guy to to break this ability of this other monster. It's very much like Mage Knight in that sense, and that you can combine your cards in ways that aren't immediately apparent. That if you put a little bit of thought into it and maybe think a little more cleverly, like instead of running up the center, I'm going to go around, or I'm going to first go over here and look for a certain artifact, you can do surprising things, which is one of the things I really want out of an adventure game. I don't just want to charge at something and lose some hit points and inflict some right. damage. So in that sense, it is similar to Gloomhaven in that sometimes there are unexpected solutions to your problems, but it is doing that grand adventure, walk around a countryside kind of thing. Cool. Um, is it co-op or competitive or a bunch of different scenarios? You know, and much like Mage Knight, it is either versus or co-op. It has this little campaign and it does kind of a cool thing where at first you are competing and whoever wins... Like it's like a wish granter kind of scenario that every character has a different wish. So they're racing to be the first to have their wish granted. And then based on who, which character has their wish granted, it branches into multiple co-op scenarios where you're kind of dealing with the fallout of somebody's wish. Like it's, it's like a classic fairy tale wish where it doesn't turn out the way you want. The wish ruins the world somehow. And now you're fighting to rectify that. So, so yeah, I, I find it quite charming. And yeah, you can play it versus or co-op. To, to me, the versus is pretty toothless. I like it co-op better. It can provide some stiff challenges. 
Well, we'll have to keep this one on the radar. I think some of uh, our friends in the game group would be fans of this one. Oh, for sure. Question for you on that co-op versus playing competitively. Have you had a chance to play CO2 Second Edition, Dan? No, I have not. Ah, that's one that is also probably best known for being a co-op game, yet there's also a competitive module to it. And I was been trying to figure out which the best side of it to engage with is first. So just wondering if you had an opinion on that. I do not. I'm sorry. Hmm. I wish I had an opinion on every game. Come on, get after it. Apparently, I played a lot of really, really, really light games this week, and it was my daughter's birthday and got the chance to do some family gaming as a result. And it's funny because my kids actually play some fairly heavy games. But this night, we just wanted to play a bunch of small, fun games. And one of her birthday presents was the new Phil Walker Harding Sushi Roll, a uh, crisscross between the Roll and Right and the uh, Seven Wonders universe, I guess you'd call that, a follow on to the Sushi Go game. And, you know it was actually a lot of fun. It's really light. So make no mistake about that. If you're a fan of Sushi Go and that card drafting thing about building a plate of sushi, I think you'll like this one too. The one interesting twist of it, like a lot of roll and rights, is you roll the dice and then you take one and you pass it to the next person and you're trying to build sets. I pretty much just taught you the game. But what's cool about it is you get chopsticks in there and the chopsticks can be used to steal a dice from somebody else. So if you see the perfect one you want around the table, You can literally take your chopsticks, grab that piece of sushi from their plate and put it on yours and replace it with something that they probably didn't want. But they're going to pass it to the next person. So you're really indirectly hosing the person after them. And that made it a more interesting game than it would just sound by just, you know, draft, make a set, draft, make a set, draft, make a set. The other twist on there is you have menus, which allow you to spend them and re-roll the dice. So, you know, there's a lot of time you're just trying to get that third one of a set and you re-roll them and jackpot, I got it. So super light, but we enjoyed the playthrough of it. No bigger than a 1B on the gaming mogul schedule for sure. I do have a question for you now because I've actually talked to you about this game twice now, once off air and once on. When you say the chopsticks, do you physically mean there's actually chopsticks there and it became a dexterity game? Or is it a card that has the ability of chopsticks? I thought it was the card the, the one time. And now that you're saying it now, it makes it sound like it's actually like a little dexterity thing. No, it's a little chit that you have that you earn from rolling chopsticks on the dice. Okay, never mind. That's lame. But having said that, I may put a few sets of chopsticks in the game with you. And if you use the chopsticks, you have to successfully actually use them to go over and grip the dice off the other person's thing. And if you drop it, well, you don't get it. Well, all fine motor skill issues are going to happen now, Mark. It became a dexterity (laughs) game. I'm going to suck at it now. Oh, no. We forgot to point out one thing in our previous episode about the website Geek Group. We gave the kind of heads up to it, but we forgot to point out one thing. Phil Cardi, the programmer for it, has a tip jar on there. And if you like his service, please use it and feel free about tossing a couple of dollars because he really has made an awesome tool for us to use to manage a bunch of the collections and for everyone to use. So if you think it's cool, throw him a couple of bucks. If not, at least we, we mentioned it here. So anywho. Now off to our main topic for the evening. This is something that we put together with Dan and hope you'll find it as much fun as we did putting it together. And Dan, it was actually your idea. Why don't you go ahead and introduce it? All right. So we were kicking around some ideas and this just popped into my head. The idea of a Goldilocks game night. I think we all have sort of our own interpretation of what that's about. But this idea that you have a game night where you've got a small, a medium and a large. Or perhaps too small, too large, and a just right, right, if you're being really pedantic about it. <laughs> of course. So I do believe that we all have our, our own thematic interpretation of what our Goldilocks game night would look like, though. Right. 
And yeah. I, I, I went a little weird with it. I went more of like a kind of step stool game night as like almost a way to put people in the right mood for the large in it. So maybe it's like a mm-hmm. preparation style thing. Sure. Is that the direction you guys went with it? I was I, I didn't want to like bring up a bad game as my big game. As like, oh, this one went too far kind of situation. All of my games are good games. Mine are uh, related by mechanism, shall we say. Okay, cool. Dan, because you had the awesome idea to bring up this topic, why don't you go first and we can see uh, if you chose well. (laughs) So I did something a little sentimental. In my mind, nearly everything I write is actually written to a specific person. It helps me to have an audience in mind. And I have a good friend who we've been friends since the fourth grade. He loves board games, but unfortunately, he's one of these dinguses who had like five kids while doing his PhD. And he is now a basket case. He has no free time. So the most we get in anymore is we play some play by email games. Got it. But whenever whenever we get together, he does want to experience kind of the latest and greatest He's really interested in the way that board games can evoke exciting kind of that magical space where they do something unexpected. And so the the game night that I put together is that if he came over and we had a solid, let's say, eight hours, which is a little longer than usual. Most of our game nights are around six. But if we had a good eight hours, I wanted a small game, a medium game and a long game that I could play with him that would be a bit representative of some of the exciting things that I think are being done with board games with some caveats. Obviously, these games can't take too long to teach. They're games where if there's a lot of rules, those are things that I can kind of manage on the side. And they're not the weirdest games. They're just a little weird, if that makes sense. So highlight the strengths of the industry and the hobby without necessarily being too far in left field. So that's That's the game night I set up. What about you guys? I did something similar. My idea was the idea of trying to get people in the right headspace for one of my favorite games. One of my favorite Mm. things in games is where you just do something and everyone around the table moans or you just get that amicable, oh, screw you kind of things. And another thing that I've been really enjoying recently has been auctions and pricing things in games. And so I wanted to set people up for the perfect night with that. And that was my kind of idea as if they were to play those, they'd be put right in the right headspace to be able to finish that large game. I'll talk about later. What about you, Mark? What's your high level description? I maybe went a little against type with my selections this time. And I picked three games that at the end of the day, you could argue they're all the same game. It's just a small version of it, a medium version and a large version of it. And all three of these games give you a very similar experience. So would it be fun to play all three of them back to back? I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. But what's cool is the fact that you can have a very similar experience, whether you have an hour, whether you have two hours or whether you have four hours. And I think that's a neat little uh, Goldilocks collection right there. So I went with two player card driven games as my theme. Interesting. All right. Who wants to start us off? Who's going to be first? I'll take the ball. OK, you go ahead, Mark. You do it. Sure. Sure. So what's a card-driven game? Well, a card-driven game is a genre of games that is probably made most popular by the game that I pick as my large choice, Twilight Struggle. It's a game where you get a series of action cards that have a series of, call them action points on them maybe, and you have a choice on your turn in that hand of cards as to whether you want to use the points on the card to spread some troops out or move some ships around or get some influence someplace. Or you can do it for the action that's on the card. 
The challenge is, is that in all of these cases, there are cards that are favorable to you. There are cards that are definitely not favorable to you. And there are cards that are generally neutral. So the idea being is that you try to maximize the ones that are favorable to you minimize the pain of the ones that aren't neutral to you and just try to eke out little advantages wherever you can. And this is a very popular mechanism as witnessed by the fact that Twilight Struggle actually was the number one game on Board Game Geek for a solid 10 years for a while there, I'm sure. It's still number five. So, you know, this is a uh, amazingly highly ranked game for a game that a lot of gamers have never experienced owing to the fact that it's a pretty heavy game. So what are the three games that are in my theme? Small, 13 Days, The Cuban Missile Crisis, Medium, The Expanse, and my large game being Twilight Struggle. So let's knock those out. Cuban Missile Crisis. This one's about oh two years old at this point. It's called 13 Days, The Cuban Missile Crisis. It plays in less than an hour, and it follows that to a T. You have a hand of cards. You're trying to, you've got a goal every round where you're trying to go through and get a certain uh, advantage in different areas, whether it's politics or a geopolitical region. And you're all trying to do that all without pushing things towards nuclear war. If you cause the world to blow up, you lose. So very short game, very thematic. And all the cards are have little pictures and little tales of a little episode that happened during the Cuban Missile Crisis. And my son pulled this out. My son is looking at Twilight Struggle and he knows how much I love this game and has been trying to get me to play that with him. He's 12. I think he could do it. But I just said, you know what? Let's start with 13 days first and see how you go on that one. And uh, it went quite well. He loved the game. Jake, I know you used to own 13 days and no longer do. So I had it. I think I was actually the one who taught you how to play or do we both buy it without knowing the other person owned it and then said, oh, we both own this. You bought it. And then I got it from my secret Santa. Got it. There it is. So I taught it to a couple of people. Um, We already have enough issues with two player games in our game group. We're just one of those game groups that don't really play two player games, which is strange because we're such good friends. We'd think we'd sit down and play two player games all the time, but we just don't. And I had a tough time getting this to the table. A lot of the people I taught it to kind of gave it a meh. And so I just kind of figured it wasn't worth my time with you already owning it. So I slapped it on the trade pile to get it out. Dan, have you played this one before? Yes, I, uh, I have played this. I have reviewed it. I really like it. I'm I'm the wrong one then, I guess. I don't know if I disliked it. I just, it, it, it was one of those things where from a collection management standpoint, I didn't know if I needed to keep it. Yeah, sure. I think it does pack a pretty good punch for a really short length game. And I, I appreciate the fact that it does give you that feeling in an hour. My medium choice is another one that I think uh, Dan is going to see eye to eye with me on, or at least I hope. And I think Jake is oh, as I'm well. See eye to eye. Jake and I are both huge fans of the intellectual property the expanse by james s.a Corey, and man i just love everything about this world and i love the books i love the tv show i love everything about it and i love the game this is designed by jeff engelstein and it's probably again about a year and a half old or something like that and same idea you've got three different geopolitical zones on there you're trying to gain influence in the areas that you care about And when the scoring rounds come up, you try to have the most ships or influence in that particular area. The trick is you don't know exactly what region is going to score next. Well, that's not completely true. Some people know what regions are going to be scored next. But you're drafting cards essentially that give you either action points or specific actions that you can do. And there's a little catch up in that the whoever's in last place has the Rosinante, which gives a little extra action that they can do each round to try to help them keep up. I know you recently did the review for the uh, Expanse expansion Doors and Corners. Which Mark needs to buy. I thought I wanted it before, (laughs) and then I really wanted it after reading your review, Dan. Well, good. Yeah, I'm a fan. There is a big downside. I think it can run longer than it should. I once played a game that ran for like four hours. Oh, geez. Um, 
Oof. Which is super unfortunate because otherwise it's, you're right, it's a medium version of Twilight Struggle. And I think it really works. I agree. And it was actually interesting because I'm most interested in replaying this game, Mark, with the expansion because, uh, which you wrote, Dan, really, really caught my eye because I played as the, um, as the protomolecule, the, what's, what's the name of them? Protogen. 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 I just read the last book. I should really know that. And I remember thinking, <laughs> okay, the protomolecule is a huge thing in this series. Um, won't describe it too much for right. listeners. And all it does is a pretty lame ability. Okay, that's lame. And so from if my recollection's correct, um, some of the expansion boosts them up a little bit, which I'm excited about. Oh, yeah. Oh, Mark, you got Yeah, I mean, so the, the protomolecule changes the game significantly. So now it's this I mean, kind of like in the, the first few books, and I won't spoil anything, but it's it's kind of the MacGuffin, except it actually does something terrifying. Right. But it's the thing they're chasing from place to place. Different factions have it at different times. And the game really hits it with the expansion. It's this thing that you put down where now everyone's competing for that spot for a pretty tidy amount of bonus points. But if there's a tie, either in first or second place, Oh, that place gets nuked. It's out of the game, which is huge. Jeez. Oh, <laughs> wow. There's not that many locations. And so you really want, especially if it's on a space that is one of your desired resource tokens, you've got to really pay attention to not getting that spot nuked, especially early on. You could be out 10 points. It could be really significant. So, yeah, it's transformative. I, I love that. That alone is is a great change. So that alone is something you could probably do by like throwing a quarter on the table and knowing the rules. <laughs> playing, playing, playing a little pizza box quarter flip. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, though, it's one of those that sure I could do that, but I love both the IP and the game itself. And I'm more than happy to support that and give them the notion that you know, maybe you should keep developing more things for this property. <laughs> yeah. And sadly, I would have bought this already. I know I can just go to Amazon and get this. I have looked at probably four different friendly local game stores to try to find this. I have never seen it on the shelf ever. Yeah, I, I haven't seen this one in the wild very much either. No, at all. Probably. Sounds like I need to get proselytizing on this one. But I will say that one of the nice parts about this is that even though we've had a number of players that weren't familiar with the source material that had not read the books or anything like that, I would say universally they liked the game, even not knowing the source material behind the game at all or the storyline. And that's a good testament for the strength of the game. Well, this is the reason I read the books and they are currently my favorite book series. So, yeah. Really? So I, I, I we played this wow. last con at ClopCon. Was it this fall or was it the one previous? And then in that point in time, I was... We played it both. Yeah, we played it both. I didn't play this past one. I, I think it was two times ago that I played it. And then I read all the books since then. And I'm not a big fan of the TV show, but I love the game. And so we need to play it again, Mark. And I actually own a copy, so I can't blame it on you. That's <laughs> not fair. I've got to say, one of the things that the game does that I respect so much is that it treats James Holden like the utter patsy that he is. <laughs> Where whatever team it talks to him most recently, that's the team he's on wholeheartedly. He's giving it his all. And I love that the game does that. Just whoever's in last place gets James Holden on their side. Completely agree. That is so thematically, that's thematic integration. <laughs> yeah, completely. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And the other nice thing is we don't have to deal with in the card game, him looking like he has to poop all season like he did on the TV show. <laughs> that's why you don't watch the TV yeah, show. That, uh, it's an easy way to avoid the, that. Yeah. The books, uh, I don't always say this, but in this case, the books are better than the show. But it makes me dirty saying that because it's such a cliche. <laughs> anyway, that's The Expanse by Jeff Engelstein and WizKid Games. I'm going to call that one a 3D on the mogul scale because the thought process and figuring out what you should do can be really brain burning in this game. 
And finally, my large selection is Twilight Struggle by Ananda Gupta and Jason Matthews, published by GMT Games. This is a game that is very well known, given that it's been highly rated for a very long time. It was published solid 10 years ago, more. You should really seek this one out if you like a heavier weight, longer game that I think tells the story of the Cold War really, really well. Because as you're playing through it, I can't count the number of times that as events are happening, you look at it and go, son of a gun, that's exactly how it happened in the real world. That's exactly the levers that were pulled in the real world. And that was the result. So much so that there are anecdotes of high school history teachers using this game as extra credit because it gets it so right. And I think the fact that it can be both historically meaningful as well as a great gaming experience hits on all cylinders for me. I'm a big sucker for that Cold War brinksmanship, edge of nuclear war theme that it so richly plays out. And so this is a big hit for me. What's different than this versus the other ones is that, first off, it's just it's a bigger game. It runs longer. There's more turns. There's a lot more cards. This one has ages of cards so that as you progress through different ages of the Cold War, you get new cards added to the pile. That also causes different scoring regions to become active. So like as in history, Europe has fought over pretty much the entire time. And things like Central America don't become important till like the middle timing of the game. And then other regions become feasible to fight over as the game wears on. And I think that's a really great way of storytelling inside there, how different regions gain and wane in importance as you proceed through it. Game's not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. Um, this game does suffer from the fact that there are some known opening moves that are significantly stronger than other ones. So if you're playing with somebody that knows those opening moves and executes them perfectly, they're going to clean your clock. No two ways about it. It's also very dependent on you understanding what the cards do, that there are certain cards that you really should never, ever let play against you. There are other cards that should always be shot to the space race and essentially gotten rid of. And there are other things that, well, I know if they do that, then I can counter it with this other card. So because that card is coming in the second age, I need to hang on to this card to counter that. That's something you don't learn unless you've had repeated plays of this game. Having said that, this is something I have played enough times that I feel like I got a fairly good grasp of it, but could certainly play more. What do you gentlemen think? I like this game quite a bit, despite it not being a game I've played as often as I wish I could have. I like what you're saying about the way that its its historicity makes a lot of sense. I think it, I think it does do a great job of portraying a particular interpretation of the Cold War that's very much about domino theory and the assumptions that major powers were operating with. Yeah, I, I, I like this one. I have played it more digital than I have in person, unfortunately. Are you playing the iOS implementation of it or one of the Steam versions online? Yeah, I'm, I'm playing the Steam version. I love asynchronous games, especially with bigger, longer titles like this. Like, I play a lot of coin series games, but that's almost entirely by Vassal these days. And this is one of the games I really like playing asynchronous. Mark, maybe we should do that. We both have the iPhone game, I think. Yeah, oh, for sure. I'd be in for that one because if we could play that asynchronously and just sort of have it going... Uh, that would be a ton of fun. So let's do that for sure. Yeah, good idea. I like this game too, but I think you summarized my thoughts exactly there, Dan. I think I've played it three times or four and I really like it, but it suffers from having like 
other games be easier to get out than this one with the two player thing. And then I wish I would have played it more. I envy a time in my life where I could just really sit down with one other person and dig into this game for everything that it has to offer. But um, I just don't think that'll happen. So maybe playing it async will be our future, Mark. I have high hopes that I can start playing this with my son very shortly. Like he managed 13 days just fine. And I think that within a year or two, I think he's going to be all over playing this game. (laughs) Yeah, I'd always sit down and play cribbage with my dad. You can play Twilight Struggle with yours. That's that's just a progression of time. That's perfect. And that's nothing against cribbage. We love cribbage. (laughs) I know we do. (laughs) Yeah, Twilight Struggle. It's an awesome game. I'm going to rank this one a three E on the mogul scale. This is about as brain burning as they come in my collection. Right. And if you are uncomfortable with the GMT style rules explanation, it might seem harder than it actually is. Yep. Yeah. Because I remember reading this and before we had become friends, Mark, and like being like, how am I going to process this? But it's not that complicated of a game. You're just kind of playing cards and you can do a certain amount of things with those. No. And even even today, if I were going to pull this one out, I would have to really relearn how to how to manage the the coups versus the gaining influence versus (laughs) the political influence or what the the three levels of influence that you can put on, because they're not super intuitive. Yeah, absolutely. So that's my theme. Card driven games, small, medium, large. That was great. Did a good job, Mark. And it's impressive that instead of three games, you told us about one game. (laughs) <laughs> right. I just like you kept on saying different things. It was the Cold War, then the Cold War in space and then Cold yeah. War again. And just as a brief intermission to go to space. Uh, I apparently took this very, very, very literally this time. And I, I probably didn't anticipate how similar of a game they actually were until I started reading them off and went, oh, it is kind of the same game three times. But oh, well, that's the theme. Mark, have you played the 13 minutes formulation of this? I have not. I've heard non-good things about it, so I think that actually sort of scared me off of it. Likewise, I haven't played Twilight Squabble either. Yeah, I haven't. I haven't played any of the shorter ones. I and I and I struggle to think of what they could actually be. I mean, because um, the shortest of the ones you mentioned, thirteen days, I think is about as compact as I can imagine this getting. Um, I mean, can you make like 13 minutes and it's about the phone call between Kennedy and cruise ship? I, I just don't know. So, <laughs> right. Like, is it a word game? We're just playing, yeah. the, you know, like what are you supposed to do there? Yeah. And one of the hallmarks of these games is they're very tense. Oh, yeah. I mean, your brinksmanship brinksmanship is a big weapon that you can wield with this one. And if it's ticking by in 13 minutes, you kind of don't have the opportunity to even feel that pressure. Right. You know, in 13 days, one of my best gaming memories is when my dad, who often talks about his the Cold War terror, you know, that fear of annihilation when he nuked me. Um, (laughs) And it was just this big irony that my father, who had raised me to be afraid of nuclear holocaust, would be the one to nuke me. So that is hilarious. The upside with that is you won and he didn't. I guess so. Or maybe, no, it was actually that he forced me into nuking him. Yeah, he he handled the brinkmanship a lot better than I did. That's what oh, it was. Got it. Yeah. My dad did beat me. <laughs> <laughs> at the game, at the game, at the game. There it is. Yes. Well, yes. So speaking of uncomfortable brinksmanship, I think you're pandering to us, Dan, with your first choice. I'm just going to say that. What? Why is that? This is my you're favorite game. Fans. Is it your favorite game? Not your favorite. Okay, so so I can jump into it, right? Yeah. Okay, so as I said, this is a game night that I have prepared for a particular friend. I want to show him some of the things I that I, I love that our hobby is doing, but I don't want them to be too too mind blowing, too complicated. So the first game, the the short game is the Grizzled, and so you guys are fans of the Grizzled, massive, huge, okay, huge. Fans. Well, I'm glad we're good friends then. Yes. I love the Grizzled, and just to look at the rules, I don't think 
I would have, I, I, I didn't know that just to look at the rules. So what the Grizzled is, is that it's one of these games that you play with very limited communication. You're all sitting around a table and you're trying to get rid of a hand of cards. So we've seen this before, right? This is this is like The Mind, this is like Hanabi. But where The Grizzled is a little bit different is just in, in how punitive it is with those cards and with what they represent. So instead of just playing cards, when you play certain cards, if they go above a certain symbol, so let's say you make, I don't know what the, the integer is, but like let's say you play your fourth artillery shell or your fourth mustard gas card, then the round is over. You've lost the mission. There are other cards, though, that are mixed in there that represent the ailments, uh, the injuries, the hurts that are being visited upon your characters who are soldiers in the First World War. And these are very hard to get rid of. And in fact, one of my favorite parts of the entire game is the end where even if you have been successful, even if you have made matches at the right time, even if you have delivered speeches, you know, rousing, encouraging speeches to your fellow soldiers, even if you've done that at the right time, nearly always you reach the end of the war and you look down at the table and out there are the remaining damage that has been inflicted upon this generation of soldiers. So somebody will be afraid of loud noises or they are shell-shocked or they have a lingering leg wound or they're mute and they cannot talk right. at all anymore. And these injuries are persistent, not only throughout the game, but they stay with you when you break down the game during that completion. And I love what the Grizzle does with this very simple cooperative rule set where it seems almost, you know, how can, how can you make Hanabi or the mind into a game that makes you think about the impact of the First World War? But that magic right. circle it engenders, that feedback between its setting and the things you're doing and the silence uh, and the inability to communicate between players, to me, really does something quite difficult. Right. And it, it's just amazing how evocative of the theme it is. I mean, so you'll be sitting at a point and you'll have one person with three ailments. They're hard knocks, right? Yeah. And you're at a point where everybody around the table knows that that's the guy that we're going to give the coffee to. He's going to get our support. We're going to give him a lending arm to try to get him through this so he doesn't get another and we can lose the game, right? And... Let's say something happens and he ends up beating a fourth or somebody doesn't end up supporting him. The conversation that happens after the game breaks is such a weird conversation normally in games in a co-op space. You normally are like, well, why didn't you do that? And you get mad in this thing. But it's just like because the game just keeps on pushing you down and down more and more. You almost like start feeling sorry and understanding what your friend who couldn't give that person the coffee was thinking. Right. It's amazing the timbre of the conversation here with the game. Right. How often is it that a cooperative game engenders genuine camaraderie? Right. I, I think it's a beautiful game. I reviewed it like probably four years ago when it first came out. And it was a very serious review. And one of the things that evoked for me was this inability of that generation to talk about their difficulties, because silence plays such a crucial role in there, specifically the lack of communication, that the way that you help people is by noticing their hurts and lending kind of this, right. this at the, you know, a blanket around the shoulder, a cup of coffee, a manly speech. You're exactly right that that end of game conversation is so different from the usual co cooperative game discussion. In part because this is a generation that many of them went on to be misunderstood, that shell shock was often seen as, as weakness. 
um, as opposed to this thing that the human brain is not meant to engage in mechanized warfare uh, and maybe needs right. some healing just the same way your body would need healing from a from an actual shrapnel wound. And I love the way the game communicates all of these very uh, heavy, difficult concepts, basically with just a very simple deck of cards, a few tokens, and asking you to be quiet. I think it's a wonderful game. Yeah, and you know, there isn't a game out there that I can think of that I am plenty happy to lose on. You know, I mean, I can count on one hand the number of times I've won this silly game. All the same, even if you lose, you do have that sense of camaraderie with the other people at the table where you're like, oh, man, that was rough. That was yeah. really difficult. We were so close. And, you know, we just couldn't keep a step ahead of it. It was just one thing after another. I thought we had it. And then that one thing, bad thing happened and we were all behind the eight ball again. And there isn't another co-op experience like that. Right. In some fragmentary way, you feel you've come through something together. Right. It and I, I, I think it's just totally beautiful what it does. And I know it, I know it doesn't work for everyone. So I, I'm, I'm quite pleased that, to find that you agree. Yeah, we're big fans of it. And we, it's, it's so fun teaching this to people. And we brought it up to, we have a just like kind of buddy convention that we run at my cabin every year. And so, I mean, the rest of the tables are playing D&D and laughing and all these people started. And so I taught my friends how to play this game. And I was off, I think, playing Caverna at the time. And we look over at them and like just the general mood over there is just completely changed of all these happy-go-lucky people after just playing this game and keeping on wanting to do it. It's it's honestly such a feat that it can evoke what it can evoke. Yeah. Yeah. There's almost a solemnity of playing it. Very right. much so. Yes. When I was young, I one of my first, you know, I do some translation work. And one of the first jobs I ever did was taking my great uncle's World War One diaries and converting them into a, a readable format for my family. And playing this game was bringing back memories of that just because, you know, he, he wasn't necessarily always on the front line. Sometimes he was. But, but just that constant grinding of people, you know, this, this, this idea that this, this machine is dispassionate and you're just thrown into it. It's one of those things where whenever I, whenever I teach this to a new group, it's surprising how evocative something so flippant can be. Um, you know, there's not much to this game, but it does a, a lot of great stuff. Yeah. Have you had a chance to see the Armistice Day version of this one, the newest version that came out last year? I have not. And it's one of those games where I've been a little bit torn because I, I almost don't know if I want to encounter that solemnity again, to be honest, which maybe sounds a little weird. Sure. I played the original and I played its expansion quite a bit. So have you played it? Would you recommend it? I think for fans of the game, I think it's a must get. The reason I say that I haven't so I have not tried the solo version of that yet. And the because it adds a campaign version to it. Mm -hmm. I do think and this was a little difficult. So I I got it. I got rid of my old copy of it. And we sat down to play just sort of the traditional version of the grizzled passed out the now delightful, amazing miniatures to everybody of the character that they're playing to sort of bring home that point of that. You're a guy and this, you know, this poor guy's behind the lines and I couldn't figure out how to get the game out and start to playing because what had happened was they'd changed around the very style of the game in that the game itself becomes like a campaign where the first round is a teaching game and they lead you in with a paragraph of text about how you're marching off into war and you're everybody's happy and sunshine and this is going to be mm. over by Christmas time. And then you play the starter game of it, of which you lose terribly. And then there's another paragraph of text about how it was one. Of, it ended up being one of the toughest battles of the war and losses were approaching 40 percent. And it can't really be that bad for much longer. So if we can just whip the Huns at this next turn. We should be able to have this one. Sure. And then you add in like the uh, the traps to it and you play that one out. Did that work for you? 
It did. I think it made it a little more complex to just get up and get playing in a way from a person that's used to playing its perspective. But if you were coming in with somebody new and teaching them the game and working like that one, I think it definitely doubled down on the thematic aspects of Hmm. it. Okay, that is interesting. They tried to do the flow of World War One of the kind of changing in sentiment, you know, the the loss of valor and all that stuff. Yeah. Interesting. Because one of the things I really respect about the game is that it doesn't resort to flavor text, for instance. Right. Uh, it, it puts a yeah. lot of trust in you to understand the context. You know, you have to come to the game with some knowledge that this atrocity occurred. So that's interesting. Yeah, maybe I'll take a look, you know, who knows? Yeah, there's nothing wrong with the original versions. I think it's but if you're a fan, it adds a lot of nice stuff to the game. Yeah. So here we are at my game night. Let me give you some emotional whiplash now, because that was the <laughs> grizzled by Fabian Rafad and Juan Rodriguez. And the next game I would teach you is Seal Team Flicks by Pete Ruth and Mark Thomas. <laughs> Can you imagine this, though, after leaving a big war and then pulling out SEAL teams and flicking things? That'd be such whiplash. Oh, my God. Oh, man. I, I think want... I'd have to go pick up smoking or something to go just, like, get a fresh breath. Yeah, you got to go out. Got to have your 10-minute break. You know, this game, but I'm, this is intentional, my friends. This is intentional because I want a breather after the grizzled. Um, so SEAL Team Flicks is one of my favorite funny games. And the reason for that, for those who haven't played it, SEAL Team Flicks is one half deadly serious where you have a SEAL team fighting terrorists. And they're not super serious terrorists. Pete Ruth, when he was designing it, he wanted to have them be Islamic extremists. But of course, that was too heavy for WizKids. So they turned them into eco-terrorists, mm-hmm. which were actually, incidentally, the bad guys in the original Rainbow Six. But anyway, it's this very serious, you move in your team, you equip them with various, you've got a flashbang and you choose your rifle. And do you want a submachine gun with a silencer or, or do you want to go loud with, a, with an assault rifle? And you, you're making all these very serious tactical decisions. And then you go in and you're breaching doors and you're hoping not to get cornered or flanked and and murdered. So very serious. But the other half is this absolutely goofball, laugh out loud, drop the grenade right at your feet, flicking game. Because anytime you want to do any action in this game, like let's say you see somebody and you want to shoot him, you place these little discs on the map and the map has these raised walls that are absolute murder to punch out and put together. But once done, hold on, we'll get there. So you put down these little discs and you start flicking them like crazy, trying to hit people with your little submachine gun. And this game does this so perfectly because it transforms this serious moment into something that is almost slapsticky. For example, in one game, the very first action we took, the enemies, we were in the subway, the enemies had bombs on timers, they had hostages. This is like a Wesley Snipes movie. And we go in and the first thing that happens is my friend Evan drops the flashbang at his feet. It goes off and blinds our whole team and alerts the terrorists, by the way, because right. it's a it's And a you guys are the, the, the cream of the crop, the best seals yes. ever. And you, and, and you look the part, too. I mean, you look down, it's got like a little dog tag marker and you got your Absolutely. MP5 yeah. and all that stuff. <laughs> Just the silliest things can happen. And in that same game, we also had a moment where we flicked a grenade. And it ricocheted off two walls and the disc turned onto its side and it rolled into a room kind of at a little curve the way discs can when they're on their edge. And it curved and went behind a barricade and landed right in the middle of four terrorists and blew them all up. It's the kind of throw that would uh, that would happen in like a Steve Martin movie. 
not in some sort of serious action movie. So it was that game. I love SEAL Team Flicks. I love what it's doing with hybrid design. And I love how just belly laugh out loud funny it is. Right. Mark should have played this game because I own it. And the only reason I ever brought it to game nights is I'm weird about carrying big things. And this box is the biggest <laughs> thing. It is so it is oversized. And you're right about the uh, map boards. The thing comes with like six or eight of them. And they're yeah, huge. I mean, they're the size of giant things. It won't fit in any game bag I have. And so I just have to like carry it in. And I feel like a little kid going to like a friend's house with like their big old thing they just got to play with them. Oh, yeah. And the box is big enough. You look like a little kid. Right. It's it's massive. But I bought mine used, so I didn't have to build it. So I was very awesome. But Mark, I'll bring this. You're going to love it. It's so fun. And the other thing that I really like, too, is they chose to be accurate in a way that makes it seem like you're trying really hard, but they didn't choose to be accurate in ways that made it more accessible. So, like, for example, there are female playable characters in the game, and I played this with Anna a couple of times when we were just learning it, and she really appreciated that because there's no female seals, but... The fact that they were able to play with that just to have more inclusion was awesome. And I think that was a good choice by WizKids. Yeah. No, this certainly sounds like a lot of fun. And I would definitely love to give this a whirl. It's taunting me now. The hardest part of this game, it is a little heavier in terms of the enemy turn. Like there's this kind of crazy activation order where they shoot and then they move and then reinforcements come in and they're all happening in a very particular sequence. The reason I feel like this is still a medium game is because no one at my game night needs to know that stuff. I can run that very easily. When people come, I just say, okay, you don't want anyone able to shoot you at the end of your turn, and you kind of need to know where they might appear and reinforce. But other than that, I can run the complicated stuff on my own, which is great for someone who just wants to come and experience a wacky game that is taking this super serious thing and treating it seriously, where you can spend a lot of time in your loadout pouring over which gun with which caliber bullet do you want to take different types of shot or different size discs do you want to spray with a submachine gun which is you can shoot five little discs or do you want an assault rifle where you can only shoot three but they're bigger discs and it's really funny to me to be making like bullet caliber decisions in a game where i'm going to shoot that first bullet it's going to bounce off a wall and hit me in the face i love that yeah it's awesome, Mark. You're going to love this game. It's it's actually might be one that's good for the family, too, with the campaign aspect of it. It's so fun. Does this do like a lot of other dexterity games where you kind of can't ground your thumb before you flick and you have to sort of float your hand? Or are you allowed to actually flick? No, you, you can flick however you want. You can flick however you want. So oh, cool. And that's good. But I mean, we cannot understate how weird the shots are because you're in an inch. I think they're inch grids and maybe a little bit smaller and they'll be too wide. And then there's small little... Uh, raised portions along the whole side and there's big wooden crates that are in the way and you have to hit some guy that's like in between all of that so even though you can actually really game it and get down and hunker and flick the correct way instead of that dumb push way it's still you're not going to hit anything it's chaos you know and <laughs> oh, so yeah it's it's a fun game though it's it's a really good time i'll i'll, I'll try to bring that to the local group because it's still sitting on my shelf of technical shame because i played it like a half game with anna a couple of times and i finished it up solo so yeah, it's two-dimensionality is also very pronounced because in real life, if a if there's a terrorist behind a crate, you're going to shoot him over the crate. Um, in this game, you have to bounce it off the wall. Right. Uh, <laughs> which is just so perfect <laughs> for what this game is trying to do. I love this game. I have never played it and not had just a great time. Just laughed a ton. All right. And uh, my, my third game is, so this is the long game. This will take, probably three to five hours to play. 
This is a game by Aaron Dill, John Kovaleski, and Sean Swigert. May he rest in peace. And it is Star Trek Ascendancy. And the reason I'm picking this is because to me, this is one of the first games in our modern wave of a symmetry done right. And here's what I mean by that. In the base game, there are three factions. You can play, if you know Star Trek at all, there's the Federation. They're kind of the do-gooders who like science and sex. There's the Klingons. They're warlike. And there's the Romulans who, um, in the original, are basically the shifty Chinese. But in our modern, they're, they're just shifty. And there's some expansions, too, where you can play as the Ferengi, which are capitalist, and the Cardassians, which are kind of this fascist overlord faction. Well, in the game, they're very asymmetrical. But you almost wouldn't notice it because everyone moves the same way. Everyone builds the same way. Everyone gathers resources the same way. Everyone's rules are pretty much the same, which is a little reminds me a little bit of a game that's very popular called Root, where everyone's movement rules are pretty much the same and everyone battles the same way. But where the asymmetry is injected is that everyone has these little modifiers and they're very minimal modifiers but they're applied very liberally to big rules. So for instance, the Federation, the do-gooders, are not allowed to just willy-nilly invade neutral planets. They just can't do it because they respect autonomy and they're post-colonial and they're very enlightened. They would never invade a planet. The Klingons, on the other hand, get points by killing stuff. So even though at no point does the game say, well, the Klingons can only earn points by killing, it just gives them this little incentive. If you go to battle, you will earn culture, which is ultimately what everyone is trying to get, is enough culture to buy ascendancy tokens. And then they give them another rule. Okay, so you want to go to battle, but they have a rule. You cannot retreat from battle because that's dishonorable. So now the Klingons want to go on these big risky attacks with huge gobs of fleets, but there's the trade-off where if things go poorly for them, they can't pull out of that. And by using these little modifiers, just these little, you know, every team has a positive one and a negative one. And then you have a deck of technologies that gives you further modifiers just by using these little teeny glimmers of asymmetry. In practice, they play vastly differently. And that's one of the first things I like about it. The second is that it's a real space game that you set it up on the table and your play space is the galaxy. And you place little space lanes, but you're not on a board. The space lanes are little, literally just little cardboard corridors of various lengths. And the planets are just cardboard disks that you put down. And the galaxy that you create is going to have important features of geometry, but no two games will play quite the same because sometimes you'll have an impassable nebula between two players. But other times you'll have two players with three fertile planets with tons of resources between them. And the way that the game does that It creates this very dynamic space that even up to the very end of the game is still evolving between these dynamic factions that feel distinct without necessarily feeling pigeonholed. So I love Star Trek Ascendancy. Have you guys played it? I have kind of. I I didn't play test it. I demoed it for a couple of hours at a couple of Gen Cons when it was released ago. I thought the thing that was neatest is exactly the second that you just hit on. To describe kind of to the listeners, all the planets are circles and they're just printed out cardboard circles. And to put them between, there's different, these lane things. What's neat about it is that's not fixed, those two in between locations, until it becomes a triangle and it's actually a rigid structure. So when it's just two things, you can really fling it around to make different passageways. And that's, that's how the rules ended up being, right? Yeah. Right. And so that's just really neat that like, 
you're building the map as you go. Cause so many of these like big epic wars, I'll going to replicate star Trek or whatever IP you want game kind of fall into the trope of just being a board and here's all the things. And having this by dynamic was so neat. I want there to be more games that have that. It was, it was awesome. Right. Yeah. It's, it's hard to overstate how cool the map is. Have you played this one, Mark? I have not. My friend JJ has a copy of this along with all of the (laughs) different uh, expansions that come along with it and modules. And he's lobbied for getting it out a number of times. And for whatever reason, it just something else got picked every time it came up. So I personally, my bias is coming in is I am definitely a fan of Star Trek versus that other star property that is probably more popular. Oh, preach. Yeah. So this is something that really appeals to me that there is finally a good Star Trek theme game because mm, there's not a ton of them. This one is not fast, though. And you hit that point. That's that's at least what kept us from. I mean, we only played an hour or two, but it's one of those things where you've seen enough of the game to know that this thing's going to drag for a bit longer. And it didn't feel bad, at least from my short experience pay. But there's a lot in it to do and a lot of things that's going to have the game grow and evolve. So it does have a quick curve to it is kind of the upside is that once you hit a certain point, it will move pretty swiftly. But you can expect with three players, the absolute minimum is an hour a player. We've done it with five and it's taken five or six hours. Yeah, it can be long. And so with that length of game, it's kind of hard. And that's eventually why we ended up not buying it. But I really liked it. And I'd I'd love if Mark, if JJ ever arranges one of those, I would love to be in for that. That sounds awesome. Yeah, he would be super excited to have the opportunity to host and run that, too, because I know he's he's looking for options to get that played and never actually gets a chance to. Right. Awesome choices. I think those are fun. I would like to be at that game day. It'd be uh, definitely interesting pivoting from the Grizzle to uh, Seal Team Flicks, though. <laughs> I, would, I would love to be there for that. And in terms of the feel, they all are very different. The Grizzle has that, uh, like you said, that solemnity. Seal Team Flicks is a bit humorous. And Star Trek Ascendancy can be brutal in terms of its diplomatic side. It's one of those games that the rules are not complex. It encourages you to do a lot of player-based negotiation. Awesome. Great. That's awesome. All right. So I also went a different method than kind of both of you guys. Mark, you kind of went with the mechanism. I went close to that, but I kind of went the same way as Dan here, where I try to make it like a perfect evening for a gamer to be for the right game. So I'm going to give the big game first, but I'm not going to describe it. Because it's a game that I've been trying to get played a lot. And we've actually talked about it in a few podcast episodes, but I still have yet to play it since we keep on talking about it. And it's one of my favorite games. This being uh, Splatter Spellen's, I believe, masterpiece, Indonesia, which is designed by Joran Druman and Joris Versinga. The reason why we haven't been able to play this game is it's a little bit of buy-in and it's not the fastest thing in the world. And we've had some experiences with heavier games, not in Indonesia specifically, but where maybe someone won't be in the right headspace for it and will take it the wrong way or won't value something correctly. And it just kind of can put a damper on the night. So my whole theory here is to try to put people in the right position to really love that game so I can convert people to Indonesia being the best splatter. So to start with this, I want to kind of distill the evening into the playful, oh, screw you, you're the worst kind of thing. To start off that (laughs) evening, I'm going to talk about a very small game from Japan that Mark and I are big fans of by Satoru Nakamura, which is called Dice Fishing, Roll and Catch. We talked about this game a little bit in the past on the podcast, but the gist of it is it's a dice bidding game for different fish that come up on the board. So you are a bunch of fishermen 
And whenever a new fish comes out, which comes out each round, you are all going to choose your setup of dice, which is a handful of D6, a D20, and a D10. And whoever has the least amount of dice chosen, with the ties going to whoever chose the least amount of D10s or D20s, gets to roll for the fish. And fish are kind of think of them as like certain things you have to get in Yahtzee. So it might be like a total value of seven and one of your dice has to be a four. So maybe you'll roll 2d6 and hope that you get a four on one of those and anything that's greater than a three on the other one. And there's some special powers. You can re-roll stuff with a couple other things. But it's really fun because it's technically an auction game, even though it's not really looking like it. You have to blindly value how much you think you can get to that. And you can really try to push to go early. It also is really conversational because it's a, it's functionally could be a drinking game. It's not hard once you know the little issues with the D10 and the D20 special reroll rules. And it's simple as heck to teach, very similar to the other ones. And you could even do it while people arrive. And this game plays up to five. So my whole thought would be we start pulling it out right when somebody comes in and you kind of keep on adding more people in and replaying this game until everybody's all readied and settled in. I know you've played this one, Mark. And uh, Dan, have you played this one before? I have not. It's a fun one. It's not the easiest game to get in the U.S. I don't believe it's actually available here. We imported copies of it ourselves. Right. Oh, okay. But I th- no, I think you can get it from Meeple Source. It's a little bit expensive, but it's, I mean, it's nothing more than it is. Um, it's just a little dice rolling game that's kind of fun. It'd be pretty easy to print and play. But it's nice in that it's challenging and it plays a higher number of people. I think it plays six, Five I believe. Six. So this box is chock full of dice because you need a bunch of dice for each player, all in different colors. So it's a great filler length game that has a high degree of interaction because you're all fighting over getting the same fish. And I don't know, it's a, I'm a big fan of this one and anxious to see how you tie it in with the rest of the theme. Right. And so I thought that'd be a good way to have people get to know each other and start talking earlier. There's not a lot of collusion. There's interaction in the way of that. You just chat in this game. You know, it's not like you're really doing anything to mess each other up. Besides, it's an auction of whoever put the least gets to go, and then you ascend up till somebody's actually going to fish the get the fish. But the next one is one where now that people have made introductions, they can start to interact with each other. I am, of course, talking about the Estates by Klaus Zock, um, originally known as Nua Heimat. Um, we talked about this one in our episode with Craig. We're huge fans of this game at the Game of Moguls. Personally, I believe it's the best auction game. So what you're doing in the estates is your real estate developers and the entire game functions by whoever's the auctioneer is going to put something, a game component up for auction. And then everybody's going to go around and starting with the person to the left of the auctioneer gets to make a bid until you go. Everybody has one opportunity. Then whatever is the highest bid of those, the auctioneer has two options. They can either take that money for that piece from the person who won and bid the highest or the auctioneer can say, "Okay, that's a fair price and pay the person who made the highest bid that amount to be able to do the thing. And so there's actual bits of the buildings that you're building and stacking up. There's roofs in there. You can extend and shorten the roads till things are complete. But this game really can put people in a good mindset. There's a lot of collaboration, and even amongst groups that don't normally collaborate will 100% collaborate in this game. There's no real way to be able to finish the roads that you need because the game ends when two of the three roads are finished, but the road that's unfinished scores negative points or any unfinished road scores negative points. And so you really have to get other people to buy in and maybe you'll win something at certain points to push and pull these different bits to make people care about something so that they'll end up helping you finish something so you'll get points. It's 
amazing the layers of interactivity in this game with a very simple mechanism of just an auction. The other thing, too, is it a little bit financial. It's not super money based. You're not needing a calculator to do anything. But I really like this game. I know you like it, Mark. Have you played this one, Dan? Yes, this is one of my favorite games that I've played this year. Uh, I think it's a wonderful auction. I, I agree. I'd say your review of it pushed me off the cliff of picking up a copy, Dan. Oh, OK. Read your commentary about how likely it was to be that you could have zero dollars and still win the yes. game. Yes, I, I love that you can win with a negative score. I'm always fascinated with games with ambiguous social spaces and auction games are great for that because there's always this ambiguity as to how much is something worth to you or to your fellow players. There's always that awkward moment where you think you can put something up for auction and start the bid really high or something like that, like in uh, some of Reiner Knizia's games, and then no one bids on it. Right. And this game is full of awkward moments like that where, oh yeah, <laughs> uh, you, you know, you, you, you're like, oh, I'm going to make so much money on this top hat right now. And you put it down and it turns out everyone's like, well, I don't know. Everything's kind of equal right now. And you end up having to place it for like, you know, nothing at all. Right. I just love what, so much of what this game is doing. I completely agree. And Mark, you love this one too, correct? I do. Yeah. I don't know if I'm smart enough for it. I'm baffled by the pricing. Like <laughs> like you just said, Dan, every time I think I'm smart enough to figure out the, oh, I know the perfect piece to put out there that's going to get a whole bunch of money. It'll go like, eh, I'll go in a dollar. Yeah. And then and then someone's like, you know what? I'll in, I'm in what? for two. <laughs> and it's like, <laughs> you, you had to consider that? What's This is two dollars. I thought you were, someone was going to pay 12 for it. And you're looking at it going, oh, I really can't give this to you for $2, but I don't want it either. Right. Durr. Yeah. And quickly, before we move on to why I think this is a great transition into Indonesia, I'd give it a mogul scale of 2C. Would you agree? Yeah. Completely. It's not that rules heavy and you can really dive into the strategy. It might even be a deary if you want to get super layers deep, but I just don't know if you can read people that well. But the reason why I think this one's awesomely paired with Indonesia is... Indonesia, which I'll give a kind of background on in a bit, has this beautiful thing where certain things are worth certain amounts to different people at different times. And the estates has that in spades. And it has that awkward moment where maybe something isn't worth something, but then it it delivers the opposite too. So if someone just puts up something that they thought they'd get six bucks from, and maybe they'd place it or something, and then all of a sudden some guy says 12 and gives pretty much all of his money to this guy just to ensure that they have this one thing. It's interesting to see that happen. And Indonesia is absolutely delivers that as well. So Indonesia, you are different business magnates setting up different plantations in Indonesia and trading them around to the different cities that exist in Indonesia through a handful of phases. The rules are deceptively simple on this one. Pretty much all you do on your turn is you follow all the different phases in a game, very similar to Splatterspell and other games where the person that knows the game, Jake, just shouts out what's happening on the turn and then everybody usually does it. Following that up, what you can do in this game is the most interesting part, which is the mergers portion of the game. So if you have two industries that are the same or a rice and a spice to be able to merge them, but let's say Mark has a spice company and Dan has a spice company. If you have the mergers power or have an open slot for mergers, you can merge their companies together and then it opens up this beautiful auction of shenanigans. A couple of things being true to make this wonderful. For one, the base plantations aren't worth anything at the end of the game. So making a huge conglomerate at the very end isn't going to score you victory points. The way you win this game is by having the most cash on hand, not tied up in assets. If you merge those two, let's say Dan had a plantation of three and Mark had a plantation of five. You have to bid a certain base level on each individual plantation unit. But because Mark owns 
five-eighths of it, he needs to have the cash in hand to be able to buy it all. But he's actually only buying Dan out of his per- percentage ownership of the new thing versus me as a third party who doesn't have any stake in it yet. I actually am paying a premium because I have to pay both Mark's shares out and Dan's. And it's absolutely wonderful to kind of see this game open up with time. It's incredibly highly player interactive because you really control every aspect of this game when it comes to new cities coming down, new shipping locations coming down. All of these interesting interactions really is wonderful. What do you guys think? Have you played this one, Dan? I have not. I, you know, I have only played a couple of splatters, so I right. missed out on this one. I haven't had the pleasure. And it's a, it's been a little bit more under the radar than their other ones, um, specifically Food Chain Magnet and maybe Antiquity get a lot mm-hmm. of the uh, press and kind of the ones that people know about, but I'm a huge fan of this yeah. one. Mark, what do you think about it? Fantastic game. It's one that we haven't played in a while and I probably have to relearn. But having said that, not too difficult because of the fact that it is actually pretty simple rules wise. The notion that auctions in that one, you have a pre-existing, uh, call it a pre-existing handicap going into it, a positive a handicap. You have a stake. Meaning that yeah. uh, you have a stake. That's a better way of putting it. That you're going into an auction and, and you've already got a very big head start on that auction versus other people means that, you know, you can jump in and just get what you want because you've already got some interest in that really twist the nature of auctions around where you're everybody is not bidding on equal footing. So if you know that you have the bully pulpit on going into that auction, you can absolutely bully people into just getting what you want. And there's very little they can do about it. Right. Well, and then vice versa works as well. So if you're some upstart rice guy and, you know, Mark has this huge network of rice, maybe you start a rice company, grow it a little bit and then merge it into Mark's rice company, knowing that you Mark's probably going to overpay for it. And you instantly cashed out. You are the Instagram guys. You're buying yachts. You know, it's it's fun seeing the <laughs> level of overpaying there that you can really do with an actual pretty simple uh, mechanism. The only downside of this game is it's kind of the same game depending on the number of players that are in it. What I mean by that is the game changes a lot depending on player count. But by having more players in it, you have more investment capital and actions that can be taken. So it speeds up a little bit. And we usually are playing games at like three and four now. And I think this game really sings at five. I just haven't had an opportunity to play it as often as I'd like. But maybe doing this whole screw you auction, putting people in the right mood evening would be a fun use of a Wednesday, Mark. No, I think that is uh, certainly a good way to build up to the Indonesia on that one. And I, I agree with you. I think on a big map game like that, if it is only three players, you could very well not bump into other people. And the game gets interesting when you bump into other people. Right. Absolutely. And it just it gets kind of plottingly slow. So maybe your corner investment pays off a little earlier and then you have more capital and then it keeps on moving down and all that stuff. But Indonesia is a wonderful game. If you see it being played sometime, try it out. If you like these kind of financial auction-y interaction games, it's my favorite of the Splatter games by a pretty large margin. So Sounds great. Wonderful. All right. And Jake, where are we rating that on the mogul scale? I think we've given it one before, but I think it's a 3D. Yep. Maybe a 3E. If that's not what it is, that's what we'll update it to. There you go. It's 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 a growing list. <laughs> well, thank you so much for being on, Dan. Um, it was great to have you on here and be a mogul for the day. Oh, yeah. Thank you for having me on. That awesome. was yeah, that was fantastic. Uh, like every time we have a guest on here, I walk away with a much longer wish list than I started the day. With. I know, right? It's like, OK, cool. <laughs> you have too many things to buy now. You have similarly <laughs> inflicted me. That was, uh, I'm going to try some of these. That sounds awesome. And let's figure out a way that uh, being that we're not horribly close to Salt Lake City, let's figure out a way that we can try some of these things uh, asynchronously so we can get some play in short of when we can do it in person. 
All right. Yeah, sounds great. That sounds so, awesome. Dan, one final plug. I am Dan Thoreau. Uh, I write at spacebiff.com, and you can find me at Twitter at Dan Thorot. T H U R O T. Perfect. Yeah, you did yes. good. That was great. That was oh, great. Thank you so much. You did good. That's the hardest part of this whole thing. It would be funny if you just all of a sudden cut out. You just cut, unplug your audio. I thought, that, I thought that's yeah. what you meant. We're frantically texting you. <laughs> <laughs> thought we were done. It's called Pull the Plug. I got one quick little plug that I'm going to throw out here as well. I've started a new podcast as well called Really Useful Knowledge, where my friend Adam and I get together and for 15 minutes, we talk about wacky historic anecdotes. So you want to learn something crazy new on your commute every day? Check out Really Useful Knowledge. Every place podcasts can be found. All right. Well, we've been the gaming moguls. I'm Jake. I'm Mark. And I am Dan Throw. Good night, everybody. Good night. This has been the Gaming Moguls Podcast, co-hosted by Mark Teske and Jake Kloppenstein. Please find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or TuneIn. Feel free to join our Board Game Geek Guild, guild number 3431. Find us on Instagram and Twitter, at Gaming Moguls. Or reach us via email, jake at gamingmoguls.com or mark at gamingmoguls.com. If you like the Gaming Moguls podcast, please tell a friend. Thanks for listening. I do wonder if people think that I'm the dumb one.